0: i Finnegan and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. part four of our Foreknowledge and Free Will series. Last time, Dr. Leighton Flowers of the Soteriology 101 podcast laid out his commitment to both God's complete knowledge of all future events as well as humanity's ability to freely choose. Rather than explaining philosophically how that is possible, he suggested that we do not need to know how God does something in order to believe that he does it. In this episode, I ask him about one more Calvinistic text— Romans 9, before delving into a number of open theism texts to get his explanation of these interesting passages. Here now is episode 306, Foreknowledge and Free Will, Part 4, Leighton Flowers Defending
1: Arminianism.
0: Dr. Leighton Flowers, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and talking to me today about this important subject again.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you for having me.
0: The classic text that people love to use as kind of a battleground for this whole subject is Romans 9. And, uh, you know, this is certainly a well-worn passage, but I'll just read a, a few verses out of it just in case any of the listeners aren't as familiar with it as I'm sure you are. But uh, Romans 9, verse 10 says: And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then uh, just jumping down, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from from the Gentiles. So the you know, I, obviously I'm cherry-picking here a little bit in the chapter, it's a long chapter, but uh, the the case is that, well, God has determined who's going to be saved, and who's going to be one of these vessels of wrath, and who's going to be one of these vessels of mercy, and just like he you know, determined, well, this kid is going to serve the younger before they were even out of the womb, he made that declaration, and sure enough, that, that came true. So in light of that, how is it possible that people are freely able to choose to believe the gospel as opposed to just fulfilling the script that God had prepared beforehand?
1: Yeah, and and I've written a book on this, where in The Potter's Promise, where I go through a line-by-line exegetical commentary uh, back from Romans 8.28 all all the way through Romans 9. Uh, For those who are interested, you can find it on Amazon and i also have at sociology101.com our website i have a lot of that material there for free for those that want to 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 dive into this from our perspective and you're right in saying that, that we could talk for for days upon days upon just this chapter wow. because for one paul is quoting over 13 different Old Testament passages here in this chapter. I mean, there's there's a lot of references here. And it's interesting that some Calvinists, like um, one that I debated, uh, Dr. James White, will say things like, well, we don't need to run off, this is his words, we don't need to run off into the Old Testament passages. We need to instead allow Paul to interpret it for us. In other words, we need to look at the apostolic interpretation. And it's a little bit of question begging because what you're assuming is is that Paul is trying to mean something different than what the original text meant in their context and I don't believe that Paul needs to exegete Old Testament scripture in order to uh, introduce this new found theology of individual election to effectual salvation, uh, with, as we see within the Calvinistic worldview. Um, and it's interesting that my interpretation of Romans 9 fits exactly and perfectly with every one of the Old Testament texts that he's quoting from. I, I don't need to reinterpret the Old Testament text that Paul quotes from in order to for it to fit my theology, whereas James White and other Calvinists, that's what they have to do. And so um, when you're trying to decide which of the interpretations, is the most likely, um, I think the one that is coherent with the Old Testament meaning and is consistent with the Old Testament meaning is probably the most likely uh, correct uh, interpretation. And so keeping in mind that when he's in, in verse 10 there, when he's referring to Rebekah's children conceived at the same time by, by our father Isaac, he's quoting from the book of Genesis there. And and when he talks about that before the twins were born, they had done anything good or bad. In other words, they weren't immoral yet. They weren't sinners yet. Okay, so this is what a lot of Calvinists will point to as unconditional election. Well, one, they're, they're assuming that this is election unto salvation, not unto service. In other words, this is not about God choosing a certain individual to be the seed through which the Messiah would come. This is about God choosing certain individuals to effectually save. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about God's purpose in choosing the nation of Israel. He chose Israel. Doesn't mean that every single Israelite is saved, obviously, because it's not about him choosing them for salvation. It's about him choosing Israel for the purpose of bringing about his Messiah and the redemption of all people. And what needs to be understood here is that God's not choosing Israel to the neglect of all the other nations. Like he's not choosing Israel because he wants to save and bless them. And, and he wants to damn everybody else. No, he's choosing the nation of Israel to be the seed through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's the promise he makes to Abraham. So if, for example, I have four children and uh, all of them are boys except for one, I've got one daughter. And so let's say I, I chose my daughter, Esther. And I said, Esther, I want you to take these this dessert to your brothers. I have chosen her. She's been picked out. Well, I'm not choosing her to the neglect of her brothers. I'm choosing her for the benefit of her brothers. It's through her that the blessing comes. Well, the same is true of Israel. God has chosen Israel through whom the blessing would come, not to the neglect of all the other nations, but for their benefit, if they will listen. Because the promise does include those who curse you will be cursed. Those who bless you will be blessed. Well, what happens if somebody stands against the promise of God? and curses the people of Israel. Well, he tells you what will happen. It's conditional. You will be cursed. But if you bless them, if you believe, if you trust in the promise, you will be blessed. And so this is his defense here. If you back up to the beginning of the chapter where he even talks about his willingness to give himself up for the Jews who have grown hardened and calloused in their self-righteousness and been cut off because of their unbelief as it says later in chapter 11. In other words, they're not cut off unconditionally for no apparent reason. They're cut off because of their hardened hearts. And their choice to reject the things of God and have grown hardened to his voice. And and Paul is willing to cut himself off for their salvation. And Paul's not more merciful than the God who's inspiring him to write these words. And then he goes on in verse four and five to talk about why Israel was chosen to be the the mouthpiece, to be the law, the carrier of the law, the the word would come through this nation. And then he's answering the question, well, is God's promise failed? Because the people of Israel, at least the popular ones that everybody looks to, they're not accepting it. They're rejecting the Messiah. So maybe God's promise has failed. Maybe this isn't working. Maybe maybe God is, is, is failing in his, in his promise to Israel. And what Paul is trying to explain here is that God's purpose in electing Israel has not failed because God always accomplishes his purpose. And sometimes he does it through a remnant that nobody even knows about, through people who are no names, through the weak babes, the fishermen. He's accomplishing his purpose, and God is able to accomplish his purpose even through the weak vessels, and he he shows this by taking them through the history of Israel and quoting here in verses 10 and 11 from the the history of it that God has chosen uh, Isaac over Ishmael, which, by the way, he refers to over in Galatians chapter 4 and even talks about the figurative language that he's meaning. If you want to go look at Galatians 4, he talks about Hagar as being The slave woman and Sarah as being the free woman. And he said, he even uses the word figurative. It's not literal, but it's figurative. He says in Galatians four and, and the obvious comparison, I think that any, any biblical scholar can notice there in Galatians four, it is comparing Ishmael to Isaac as Ishmael is the, is the one who represents works Uh because what does Abraham do? Abraham doesn't wait on the promise. He doesn't believe God. And so he tries to work it out himself by having intercourse with his a servant, Hagar. And so that's representing works-based salvation, if you will, or not waiting on the promise. Whereas Sarah represents the promise. And that's that's through Isaac. So the, the dichotomy that Paul is setting up, the figurative dichotomy that Paul is setting up, is works versus faith. Not monergism versus synergism, not Arminianism versus Calvinism. It's faith versus works. You worked through Hagar, and you got Ishmael. You had faith and waited on the promise through Sarah, and you got Isaac. That's the figurative language between these two sons. And then he goes on to continue to expand upon that by extending it on down to the next generation that, yes, there's Esau and Jacob. Jacob looks like um, he's the weak mama's boy. He's the deceiver. Right. He, he's not one you would choose because he, before he even did anything good or bad, though God chose for him to be the lineage. But Esau's the more likely choice. Esau's the hunter. He's the he's the big brother. He's the firstborn, and yet the older will serve the younger according to the prophecy out of Genesis. Well, then he quotes a after picture. Fifteen hundred years later, he quotes from Malachi, the last book of our Old Testament. 1,500 years has passed. Esau's long dead now. And he quotes from Malachi saying, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. Now, is he talking about individuals being hated before they're ever born? No. He's talking about Jacob being the nation of Israel. I have loved. I've chosen them to be the blessing. Esau, Edom, they cursed the nation of Israel by attacking them. That's what, that the, that's the context of the quote is that he says, I hate Esau because they rejected the promise. They attacked Israel. They didn't believe. And look what happened to the Edomites. Look what happened to them. Well, what's going to happen to the Israelites of Paul's day if they stand against the promise of God? They're going to suffer the same fate as um, Edom. And even though he's a direct descendant of Isaac himself, they don't receive the promise. They don't receive the blessing. Why? Because they stood against the people of God chosen to carry the promise. And and that's exactly what's happening in Paul's day. People of the lineage, the descendants of Abraham are standing against Paul and other apostles, and yet what's going to happen to them? They too are going to become under the wrath and hatred of God if they stand against his promise. So what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is not therefore to men on the man's human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. And so to me, it seems obvious that what, what Paul is concluding here is that the election of the nation doesn't depend upon the faithfulness of that nation as a whole. Um, this is exactly what he brings up back in Romans chapter three. If our unfaithfulness brings out God's glory, then are we still to blame here? Why are we still to be blamed as, as Israelites if God is using us in our rebellion to bring about his glory and his plan, that's the interlocutor in the mind of Paul. The interlocutor is not somebody revolting against double predestination and this idea of reprobation. the, the interlocutor in Paul's mind is a Jew who has been hardened and calloused in his rebellion, who is objecting to the fact that God has used him in his plans to bring about the redemption of man through his rebellious actions. And so that's why he would say, is God unjust in doing this? In other words, is God unjust in, in using Israel in this way, in having the older serve the younger? Is he, is he unjust to do that? Is he unjust to allow Jews to cry out, crucify him and use that for his purpose to bring redemption to the barbarian Gentiles of the world? And it doesn't depend upon how much they desire and run after the law and strive after the, the law. Um, that God can have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. He can have compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. Yes, even a barbarian, sinful tax collector or prostitute Gentile, he can can do it because he's a sovereign God and he can choose his covenant people. However, he wants to choose his covenant people. If he does it through faith, that's his prerogative. If he does it through works, that's his prerogative. But the scripture is pretty clear. He does it through faith, not through works, which interestingly is exactly how he concludes the passage. In, in verses 30 and following, when he says, what shall we say to these things? In other words, he's given a commentary on his meaning. And what does he say? He says, the Jews have pursued it through law and they have not attained it. But the Gentiles, they've pursued it through faith and they have attained it. So he doesn't deny that there's a pursuit that's happening. It's a pursuit through faith, like through uh, Sarah, or through works, like through Hagar. That's the dichotomy that Paul is setting up. Faith versus works, God's sovereign right to define his covenant people however he wants to, whether through faith or through works, it's his right as a sovereign king to define how that works. Again, I, I probably skipped over a lot there, and it may not be real clear when you're not sitting down and reading it verse by verse, but hopefully that gives a nutshell kind of perspective.
0: Right, and if people want a more thorough explanation, they can they can check out your book.
1: Right, and, and I will say on the Potter Clay analogy, Also, remember, Paul uses that analogy in other places, like in uh, 2 Timothy 2.20. He says, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes, some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared for any good work. In other words, it, it, we need to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. We see the the potter clay analogy with regard to Israel back in Jeremiah 18 as well. And it doesn't remove the individual responsibility whatsoever. There's an analogy showing that God has the right to take a a marred lump of clay like Israel in their hardened condition, and he can use that that marred lump to cry out crucify him, for example. He can use that marred, already calloused lump to bring about his purpose, just like he did through Pharaoh in the first Passover. He hardened Pharaoh in his rebellion to accomplish the first Passover in much the same way that he hardened Israel in the second Passover to, to accomplish it. And so he he has a sovereign right to do what he wants. But notice it says those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes. In other words, it's your responsibility to repent and to come to him and, and to be reconciled, which Paul apparently believes they can do, even the hardened Israelites. He even says they haven't stumbled beyond recovery in chapter 11, verse 11. He even says that his ministry to the Gentiles might provoke them to envy so that they too may be saved. That, that doesn't sound like somebody who's given up on them because they predestined before the foundation of the world to be damned. It sounds like somebody who thinks that even though they've been cut off in their unbelief, they may still be provoked to envy and come back and be grafted back in. That, that sounds like a, a hopeful message, not a, de- a determined message of fatalism or, or something of that nature.
0: Yeah. Very good, very good. I uh, just want to ask uh, a clarifier on one little statement you made there. You said— Sure. You, you, you kept using the phrase, sovereign God, and uh, I'm sure that any Calvinists listening to this are bristling when they hear you use this terminology. The understanding there is that if God is sovereign, then— He decides who's saved, and if people have that libertarian free choice, then that infringes on God's sovereignty. So maybe you could just clarify how you think of sovereignty.
1: Sure. Well, sovereign means the right to rule as one pleases. In other words, he can do whatever he wants. Um, Sovereign doesn't mean determinism. Sovereign means the, the, the right to be God. And, and uh, I think a great working definition of sovereignty is Psalm 115.3. It says, God sits in heavens and does what he pleases. You just can't assume that he is pleased to deterministically control people's thoughts, actions and deeds. Uh, in, in verse 16 of that same chapter, it goes on to say the, the, uh, the heavens belong to the Father, but the earth he has given over to man which seems to indicate that God's pleasure is to give some sense of autonomy. Now, we can debate exactly what level of autonomy that is, what sense of freedom that is, but it does seem to indicate that when we pray, God, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that it's not always done here on earth as it is in heaven. We, we're, the reason we're praying for God's will to be done here is because there are principalities and rulers in this world who are doing evil things, autonomously of God's will, in other words, separate from what God desires or wants for them to do. And we are under the weight of that sin and the consequences of those sins. And if God's stepping in and stopping it here and there and all over the place, then we're never going to experience the full weight of being under sin and the curse. Um, and so I, I think it's really important to understand that sovereignty never, in, in any dictionary, matter of fact, the, the word sovereignty doesn't really even appear wow. in Scripture. That's <laughs> it's, what's funny about it. it. The word sovereignty is just a transliteration of the word Lord. And it, that way, instead of saying, you know, you'll see Scripture, some of them will say Lord, Lord. Some um, translations have taken one of those Lords instead of just being redundant. And they've used the word sovereign. So they, they say sovereign Lord. And, and so the, the, the word sovereign is really just, it, it's just another word for Lord. It just means ruler. He can do whatever he wants that says nothing about determinism. It says nothing about God's choice to micromanage his creation. Um, and so it's, it's a little bit frustrating when uh, when people redefine words to mean something that they've never meant uh, throughout human history in order to fit a kind of a systematic way of thinking. Um, and ironically and interestingly, even even there have been some Calvinists who have written articles correcting other Calvinists on this point. And and actually saying you're you're actually misusing the word sovereignty. You actually need to talk about a meticulous providence if if you want right. to to mean uh, you know Calvinistic determinism. You need to say meticulous providence. You don't need to say sovereignty because sovereignty doesn't mean that. So um, some of them are starting to correct themselves on that that misuse okay, of the good. word sovereignty. Now let's
0: push back on the other side of the equation here. On uh, in Genesis six, there's the the flood described, and how God is is so upset at the wickedness. It says in Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Uh, I think some of our older translations say, says it, uh, it repented the Lord that he <laughs> had made humanity or made man. And so the, the question here is and and you can really see this come out in John Calvin's own commentary on Genesis 6 is why would god feel regret if he already knew humanity was going you know to to go in this direction anyhow why 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 does he seem to be so upset about it um if if he already knew it was going to happen
1: well i mean why were my wife and I so upset whenever she started having labor pains, even though we knew it was going to happen? I mean, so you can know something is coming, but still experience the regret and pain of that thing when it actually takes place. What doesn't seem to make sense to me is if if God is ultimately the one determining the thing that's happening. Um, for example, um, and this may be a passage that you want to uh, talk about as well. In, in Jeremiah and other places when it talks about them right, burning yeah. children to Malek and, and and God saying I didn't decree this, it didn't even enter my mind. you know this regret or this I can't you know I can't believe you're doing this. The same kinds of things I think you know we would express even to our own children. Yeah, I knew my children before I had children would lie, uh, would do bad things because I know enough about human nature even prior to having children as to what they would do. Now, obviously, all analogies fall short. Our our knowledge isn't perfect, but I can have a sense of knowing something and still expressing a genuine sense of regret and pain when it happens temporally or when it actually takes place. Um, And and I think that makes sense. In other words, I don't think God's knowledge of something um, is inconsistent with an expression of... Uh, regretfulness or anger towards, or you know, angst towards those things. I hesitate to use the the term anthropomorphism because I understand that Calvinists oftentimes use it to prove determinism. Um, but there is a sense of anthropomorphism within the scriptures, where God is given human like qualities, uh, the hand of God or the thoughts of God or the ways of God described in uh-huh. human like characteristics. Um, And and especially in poetic language, Um, I I don't think that those, that explanation should discredit the obvious meaning of the text. Um, But at the same time, it shouldn't be ignored that the way we use vernacular to describe an infinite being should not um, limit his other characteristics, especially when the scriptures are very clear in the didactic teachings about his other characteristics and about his abilities, and so I, that's where I think there's a balancing act between the determinism and omniscience. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater by throwing out determinism and therefore throwing out omniscience with it. I don't think we need to throw out omniscience. I think omniscience can be um, intact, fully intact, but yet all these verses still make sense in in a way that you know is not contradictory. In other words, but still right. carries a level of mystery.
0: So you wouldn't you wouldn't affirm. A doctrine of impassibility of God?
1: Well, it depends on, again, just like any other doctrine, how, how one defines that doctrine. Um, well,
0: just the idea that God can't experience any emotions.
1: Well, again, th- this gets into how you would understand both the infinite and transcendent aspects of who God is. For example, even within the triune nature of God in, in Christ, we see an incarnational um, being weeping with people, um, and experiencing obvious emotions um, as the incarnational Christ. And so God obviously can, at least on some level, experience emotion within creation. But I don't believe that has to be to the neglect of the transcendent aspects of his knowledge or his immutability and all the other things that people describe as being the omnis of God, if if you will, um, the, the right. different aspects of God's character and nature. Um, I I don't think those are inconsistent with his expressions, his genuine expressions within the temporal language of our vernacular and relationship to God.
0: Okay, let's let's move on to Isaiah 5. This is the place where God is using the analogy of a vineyard to talk about his people and how he had worked so hard on his vineyard and had built it up and and put good seed there and everything else, and then the people ended up doing differently— than God seems to have expected here. So, for example, Isaiah 5.3 says, And now, o inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed in briars and thorns." shall grow up. I will also command the clouds, and they will rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And he goes on after that with all these different woes to the people. So the question here is, why does God have seemingly false expectations if he already knew exactly what his people would do.
1: Well, in the same way that a parent might know the tendency of their child, um, but express still to that child when they make the the wrong choice, his disappointment. I, I think that can be explained through things like this, where he's just expressing, this is what I expected you to do. I expect you to clean your room parent usually knows when uh, when a child uh, is is going to or not going to do those things again all analogies fall short in some uh, some regard because obviously our knowledge of what our child is not perfect but we can have a pretty good um, understanding of where our child is going to go with a particular uh, command that we give them and still express to them great disappointment in their choices uh, as a rebuke over them so if you got a bunch of fifth graders i mean five-year-olds getting together and talking about their parents. Um, I can imagine some of their speculations as five-year-olds, as the, the five-year-old mind only can comprehend so much about a parent. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I could hear one five-year-old saying to the other, well, my mom asked me the other day if I'd clean my room. She must not even know if I really cleaned my room or not. She must not know that I was actually playing on video games all along the way. And the truth is, you and I would know as parents, she very likely did know, maybe even went and looked in the room to know that it was dirty might've even been watching him all day long on video games, but still ask the question, have you cleaned your room yet? Well, the five-year-old interprets that, well, she doesn't know. I haven't cleaned my room. Obviously she must not be very knowledgeable. Well, no, that's not the case. She's, she's purposefully entering into his world and saying, have you cleaned your room yet as a way of challenging him as rebuking him. It doesn't mean she doesn't la- she lacks knowledge about that. It simply means, that she is entering into his world to challenge him much like you would you know you would say in the you know the garden when uh, he asked about adam and eve where where are you as if god doesn't know where they are i don't think we necessarily need to interpret that that god doesn't know where they are but instead that he's relating to them in the way that they understand relationship and the way that they can engage with him in relationship And i don't think there's anything wrong with us understanding god in those anthropomorphic terms, because that's the way he's revealed himself to us. But it doesn't mean that we have to use such narratives as a as didactic teachings of of theology to say, well, therefore, if God expresses it in this way, then therefore His His knowledge is limited in some way that that we can understand it within our finite brains.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you you already mentioned the Jeremiah text, so I'm I'm going to pivot and. Just mention this one incident that is kind of a test case for thinking about this from an open theistic uh, point of view, which is the whole incident with Moses in the wilderness and how God said he was going to destroy the people. And then Moses prayed, and it, it says God changed his mind. In Psalm 106, it says in verse 23, Therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach. Before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them, and uh, of course the, the text in mind is Exodus 32, verse 10, where it says, God says, Le- leave me alone that I my wrath may burn hot against them, and then Moses implored them, and it says in verse 14, and the Lord relented, or changed his mind from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. How would you read this, and what, what were your what would your thoughts be on this text?
1: Well uh, let me let me turn around by asking a question. Would we have all perished had Jesus not stepped in and interceded for us? Uh, yes, in your view. Yes. okay. So um, yeah, obviously, I mean we, we all needed Christ and he and in a lot of ways, you know you might see the, the work of Moses as the intercessor as kind of a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Uh-huh. And so I think even open theists would agree that God not only knew, but even planned for the coming of Jesus and, and his death, burial, and resurrection, right? Yes. But, but they also would maintain still that had he not done that, we would have perished. Had he not stepped in and interceded, we would have perished. Uh-huh. Right. So in the same way, you could express that with Moses. Had, had Moses not stepped in, the people would have perished. And so I, I don't think it, it in any way changes the knowledge of God within that circumstance of just expressing this is what would happen had Moses not done that. This is what would happen if Jesus had not done that. Um, I, I don't think, again, I, I do see how that would stand against determinism because ultimately you've got people rejecting him because God determined them to reject him. And all God had to do is irresistibly change their hearts to, to make them not reject him. And then he wouldn't have needed the intercessor. And so that doesn't make much sense. But, I don't think that knowledge of God uh, is contradictory within that scenario, if that makes sense. I I don't think God having knowledge makes that incomprehensible.
0: Well, I'm just interested in the whole issue of prayer here. And I tell you, once I I was sitting in a class, and the teacher said something about prayer— a student asked a question—it was a—what class was it? It was a patristics class. Uh, I did a lot of church history— and uh, the student asked a question about prayer, and the teacher said, "Oh, well, you know, prayer doesn't change God. You know, God is immutable. You know, He can't be changed, and He already knows everything you're going to pray anyhow. So, you know, prayer prayer really only just exists for you because you need to get on board with what God's already decided is going to happen. And uh, that is that is not at all what I see here." with Moses and God. I mean, God says, I'm going to destroy him. Moses prays, and God changes his mind. I mean, this, this to me, on a, a face value reading, seems to indicate that prayer really does affect God. And I, I don't know if you have a horse in that race uh, from a, more of an Arminian perspective, uh, but I'd be curious to hear, you know, your view of uh, prayer in light of this, and, and how, you, how you think of it personally and devotionally.
1: Yeah, I, I agree that I do believe prayer changes things because I don't believe in determinism. But I don't think that you have to get rid of omniscience in order to get rid of determinism. I and see. so, um, and again, there's mystery involved in there, as I've admitted from the very beginning. I think there is a, a level of mystery. I just don't equate knowledge with determinism um, or, or God's knowing it with um, certainty as therefore meaning that I don't have freedom to affect change. Again, I understand some people philosophically can't, can't or won't um, accept those two things. I, I just don't have a problem with it. I, I don't have a problem accepting the fact that God knows things, and yet we are still called to pray and uh, uh, and to ask Him to intercede and to to work within time and space in the temporal world because our prayers do change things within the temporal, car- uh, incarnational aspect of our relationship with God. How that works with his infinite knowledge and his transcendent nature, I don't fully understand or know. But what I don't believe is that the Bible ever teaches us determinism, i.e. that he determines ultimately what we will decide, or I don't believe it it denies that he knows what people will do freely. I don't believe either one of those is theologically uh, consistent with the scriptures, though I admit the philosophical difficulties with both views. Mm
0: -hmm. And on prayer— Maybe you could just offer some comments on, you know, how you how you think about the subject of prayer.
1: Sure. Well, I, like I say, the, the, like I said before, the the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and that seems to say prayer changes things. Um, prayer makes a difference. Prayer impacts. Um, prayer has uh, in, in influence. I mean, God calls us not only to pray but to continue to pray, persist in prayer, yeah. as if that makes a difference. Um, and 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 sometimes I think. I think it's right what your teacher said sometimes that we need to, it needs to be about us changing our will in light of what his plan is, because sometimes he is planning to do things. So for example, Peter might've been praying, Oh, don't let Jesus get crucified, God, don't let that happen. And obviously God has a bigger plan. And so sometimes his prayer really is about him being conformed to what God is already planning to do. Um, And so, yes, sometimes prayer is about that, but, I, I don't think it's always that way. I don't, I don't believe in determinism. Um, but again, I don't think omniscience conflicts with determinism. Yes. I understand how some people see that it might, but I don't believe that it does. I don't believe philosophically it's it's a it's a contradictory problem. I think it's a mystery, but not a contradiction.
0: Uh, in, any other final thoughts on the, the subject that you'd like to offer?
1: Sure. We, we, we jumped over Jeremiah passage because I'd mentioned it, but it, even if we went back there, I'd, I'd yeah, I'd let's let's do it.
0: Sure. yeah. let me yeah. let me just read it out so that uh, sure. people have it fresh in their in their minds. That's uh, jeremiah seven thirty one it says, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind.
1: The pushback that I would give, obviously for the Calvinistic rendering of that, it seems to fly in the face of the concept that God had somehow sovereignly determined or brought about the burning of the children to Molech. Um, Matter of fact, it's Jeremiah, what, 19.5? That's the parallel to this passage? Yeah, there's a few. Yeah, there's a few that's parallel to this. And he even says, I did not decree it, nor did it enter my mind. And so he actually uses the word decree, according to the ESV, no less. And so (laughs) to to say that God decrees all things, and then then for God to say, I didn't even decree this, it didn't enter my mind— I don't see how one can walk away even using something like anthropomorphism to conclude that God ultimately decreed for the 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 people to burn the children to Melech for his own self-glorification in some mysterious way. I, I just I don't see how that's the possible translation of this. But if I were pushing back on the open theist view, which ultimately, in my understanding, and you can correct me here, I, I'm I'm assuming a Greg Boyd or someone like that who opens uh, holds to open theism would say that this did not enter my mind means that he did not know that they would do this. Right. Okay, but don't open theists believe that God knows all possible possibilities?
0: Uh, yes, I, I think generally.
1: Okay, so he knew it was possible for them to sacrifice children to Molech. Yes. So it did enter his mind as a possibility, even on open theism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you see what I'm saying? In other words, it doesn't really open theism doesn't really fix this issue because even on open theism, he knows all possibilities. So he would have to know it was possible for people to actually sacrifice children or rape people or uh, Holocaust or I mean, he had to right. know, right. he had to know at some point, whether it was a million years before or 10 minutes before, either way, right. he he had to to know it was possible. And so even the did not enter my mind can't be taking so rigidly literal, even from the most, I think, open theist position, uh, as as meaning that God didn't have prior knowledge to what, what they could have done, at least.
0: Uh-huh. So how do you see it, then?
1: He's expressing... His disappointment, just like I've talked about before with the children, you can express disappointment in something that's happening, even though you knew in advance that it was coming uh, The labor pains, for example, that I mentioned earlier, or when you buy a house, you know that you're going to have to fix toilets and do lawn care. Um, but then once it comes to the, the point where you're doing all this lawn care and fixing toilets, you you regret that you bought a house. Um, you can still know something is happening while expressing a sense of regret or angst or anger when it actually comes to pass. Um, and, and so I would I would explain that verse this way. It's just to say, yeah, God knew this. He didn't determine it, but he, he knew it, and he expresses his disdain for it when it happens. Right. So then th- this case would be
0: like a hyperbole where he's saying something in an extreme way to make his point as opposed to yeah describing yeah. how he— to,
1: y- it, well yeah to some degree obviously it, yeah he I, I would say he didn't decree it it didn't enter his mind in the sense of that he determined it to ha- would happen but even like I said even on the even on the open theist view it's it's hyperbolic in the sense that God would have had to know at least the possibility of them sacrificing right, children yeah. so that even 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 for the open theist there is a a sense of hyperbole in this in this statement right
0: right well i think you you're making the case that the open theist basically has the same problem
1: <laughs> right well and, but and, that's and not that case that's not all i'm interested in
0: i'm also interested in how to solve the problem so uh yeah, i appreciate and, and I would your... say
1: the open theist also has a problem with like you know um sometimes the reason people appeal to open theism is the whole theodicy issue right. Was okay the rape of somebody okay well whether god knew about it 10 million years ago that that Susan would be raped. And I'm just using a random example. Okay, so Susan is going to be raped. Horrible, bad event. Well, whether it was a million years ago that he knew it or 10 minutes before he knew it, you would have to see him sneaking into the window. God, God knows this rapist is sneaking into Susan's window right. and he doesn't stop it. Right. Well, that that again, that that is the same problem as whether he knew it 100 years ago or 100 million years ago as to whether he knew it 10 minutes before it happened. He still didn't stop it. He still permitted it to continue. So some people are running to open theism because of the emotional concern over theodicy of what God allows. But what you have to point out is things like this is that even on open theism, God knows the possibilities and he certainly knows high probabilities of things as they're happening in the moment. And he's still not stepping in to stop it. So you're really not solving the major problems of theodicy by jumping into open theism. It it really doesn't solve those issues. And so if it did solve the issue, I might be more drawn to it. I mean, if it did solve all those those problems, but it just doesn't. Even this verse is not solved, as I just pointed out, by open theism. The better solution is to still maintain God's perfect knowledge and human responsibility, human free will in every decision. um because in 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 that situation, you still have people making libertarianly free choices that they're responsible for. You still maintain that God knows all things and is, all things and is bringing about his redemptive plan despite and even sometimes through free choices of creatures. We push back to, I think, the free will theodicy that we see, uh, I think expounded on by men like C.S. Lewis in the most articulate way that I've ever heard it, at least in his problem of pain book, uh, which I highly recommend for those who are struggling with theodicy is to, to read C.S. Lewis's book on that subject, because I think he really does go into the reason for freedom and the reason for love worth having. It can't be a toy world, a world of automatons, but a world that has genuine risks and genuine choices and, and, and genuine love and relationship with her worth having but at the same time still maintains a sense of mystery because we are dealing with an infinite creating a creator God within a finite temporal world, which is beyond full comprehension.
0: Yeah, well, it's certainly beyond my mind. <laughs> yeah. uh, what What would <laughs> you recommend uh, for further research on this topic? I've heard you talk about Boethius before. Uh, where would people get in touch with, with his work or uh, maybe some of your own work? Uh, where should people go?
1: Well, yeah, the, the Consolation of Philosophy is is the classic from Boethius back, I think it was 5th, 6th century, when he wrote that. And it was the most dominant prevailing view, philosophical take on omniscience and free will throughout most of church history. Um, it, it's funny how Calvinists will talk like um, their view of compatibilistic Um, theism and and sovereignty is is ultimately meticulous divine control of all things, as if it's the most predominant view. And it's just not. I mean, now, let me just say, just because a view is the most popular doesn't make it right. Right. Um, That's one of the reasons I don't throw open theists out of the kingdom like so many people are doing. I I don't understand why people treat open theists with such disdain, but but, but then treat Calvinists Uh, You know, even though they disagree with Calvinism and open theism, they treat open theists as if they're just these huge heretics that are just horrible, and then they treat Calvinists like they're pretty normal. And why? Because their error is virtually the same as the open theist error, from our perspective at least. It's just the other side of the road. Yeah, they're creating the same modal fallacy. Um, one of them is just trying to solve it through denying God's knowledge, and one of them is trying to, to solve it by denying man's freedom. But both of them are trying to solve the same problem. And so I, I give them a little grace and say, you know, this is a philosophical issue that's hard to deal with. They're trying to be true to the text. Um, let's let's have a little grace, a little mercy here, and let's let us let people work through these issues and understand that that, yeah, we can still stand firmly on what we believe, but we don't need to throw people out. Of the kingdom, simply because they have a different philosophical conclusion than we do about some things, um, and 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 let people struggle a little bit with with those, you know, difficult, hard, infinite matters, those inscrutable matters of, of God and His knowledge and how things work, and, and I, I wish people had a little bit more of a safe space within Christendom to talk about the difficult subjects. Right. Um, Dialogue is really key. Yeah, it, it is, and in in my experience not always true and it's probably because open theism is more uh, is a little bit newer and and at least um, lesser known of the theological views that it's treated with uh, such disdain and I understand that obviously but just because uh, uh, an error is old doesn't make it any uh, <laughs> any worse of an error than a new error um, and so using that as a justification for uh, condemning people who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He He died and He rose again, that through Him right. and only Him we can be saved. We all hold that in common, so let's let's have a little bit of grace for those who are struggling right. philosophically with uh, the the infinite matters of God's knowledge and man's free will.
0: Yeah, and I, and that tone that you just expressed there really does come through in your in your podcast, and I personally do uh, want to thank you for that because having a little free space to line things up and discuss them is really helpful. And uh, otherwise, we're all just stuck in these echo chambers, even more so today, with seemingly more access to information. All our information... Somehow or other, through social media or just self-selection, seems to get curated. <laughs> yeah, yep. And uh, we don't we don't hear the other side. So this is uh, this is some really great advice you uh, you bring to the table. Talk to me about your books, just ever so briefly, as we're closing out here. What's the difference between the Potter's Promise and God's Provision for All, and what sorts of audiences would be interested in them?
1: Sure. Yeah, the Potter's Promise was really um, written in my preparation for my debate with uh, James White. Uh, in in really focusing on Romans nine, that's the bulk of the book. Is the exegesis of Romans eight twenty eight through uh, chapter nine, um, and I and I added on some previous chapters which get into some of the philosophical issues. I even talk about. The Boethian model of C.S. Lewis and others that that hold to more of an eternal now view of God and his his the perspective of his omnipresence that God knows all things not because he determines it all because but because he's at all places at all times and that's beyond full comprehension. I get into that a little bit there. I, I get into my journey in and out of Calvinism that I, I kind of expressed here, and so that that really is my answer to and my response to some of the the major Calvinistic proof texts and philosophical arguments. The um, God's Provision for All book doesn't even mention Calvinism in the in the bulk of the book. It mentions it in one of the appendices, but it is not really about Calvinism. It is more of a, a positive defense of what I what I refer to as provisionism, or more more popularly known as traditionalism, uh, of of God's goodness that we believe God is a God who provides for all people because that's. That's what's recognizably good. We don't call God good just because we have to. We call him good because he's recognized as being good. Um, He does good things. He doesn't pass by on the other side of the road like the Levite in the Samaritan story. Uh He's the one who stops and helps his enemies. Um, And therefore, it's just important to understand the goodness of God's character is really about his holiness. It's a defense of God's character in light of even uh, some of the Old Testament passages, which, which seem to paint God in a, in a, a, a way that seems very uh, mean and, and uh, arbitrary and destructive sometimes in the way we read some of the Old Testament passages. It kind of goes through some of that as well. And so it just gives, I think, a positive defense of the goodness of God in his character and his provision for all people.
0: Very good. Anything else you'd like to say before we close out?
1: No, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, The the website, StokeTuriology101.com, you can find the podcast and a lot of the other information. If you have questions about details, uh, you can probably find it there. All
0: right. Well, thanks so much. appreciate it.
1: God bless. Thank you.
0: Well, that's it for this episode with Dr. Leighton Flowers. Um, I've got some links to books mentioned in this episode in the show notes for this episode, including The Consolation of Theology by Boethius, which is available both on the Internet Archive and on Amazon, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis, and Flower's own two books, The Potter's Promise and God's Provision for All. I encourage you, if you haven't yet, to check out the previous episodes where Dr. Dale Tuggy talks about open theism. Uh, Really, the first episode there, he doesn't talk about open theism so much as lay out the groundwork for all of these different theories that are out there, and I highly recommend that to you if you haven't listened to that yet. Also I've got some other links that you can follow Leighton Flowers' work, check out his Soteriology 101 podcast, uh, that's how I first came across him. Also wanted to read out some quick feedback from our last episode, that was episode 305, Foreknowledge Knowledge and Free Will Part 3 with Leighton Flowers introducing Arminianism. Arthur Sinnis writes, Hi Sean, thank you for the podcast, especially this series, Caliber of Speakers. I just wanted to make a quick comment regarding the Peter denial that was said by Dr. Dale Tuggy, that a determination in one's heart is one of the mechanisms that God uses to predict the future. When Jesus predicted this event, it seemed truly to go against where Peter's heart was at. Matthew 26, 31 and 35. Unless Peter was faking it, or God could see much deeper. I don't think it could be said about this occurrence. It seems more likely to fulfill a prediction given 500 years before Christ in Zechariah 13.7 with the suggestion of determinism or foreknowledge as better suited to this story. Thanks again for your efforts and sharing. Additionally, John Raftos writes in and says, Hi Sean, I am loving this series. It is so informative to learn the different views around foreknowledge and how this can work in In with free will. I am of the open theism view, having considered all of the other different views, but I have a question you may like to answer for me. I was listening to a prominent atheist debater speaker by the name of Dan Barker. One of his arguments is to show that there is a contradiction in what some say about the nature of God to discredit his existence. Uh, Those of you who don't know, Dan Barker is a pastor-turned-atheist evangelist. Raftos continues, his argument goes like this, God is unchangeable, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing. If God foreknows what he will do in the future and he cannot change, then this means that he lacks the power to do so. Hence, God is not omnipotent and does not have free will. A logical contradiction, as he puts it, discrediting the existence of God. The arguments and information so far in this series have been in regards to God's interactions with mankind and people's ability to exercise their free will. What are your thoughts on this argument, which only has to do with the nature of God, and how we define God as being omniscient, omnipotent, and eternal, and the matter of free will? I have my thoughts on the matter as how I could overcome the objection. However, I would love to hear you or Dale roll out some ideas in a nutshell as a response to this argument so I can use it in discussion rebuttals with atheists. Is there really a contradiction in the nature of God? Is this a valid argument? Or is this just an arbitrary term definition of eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful nature of God problem? Well, John... Barker's three statements, once again, were, God is unchangeable, God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing. And I personally would strongly disagree with, number one, that God is unchangeable. Uh, We find plenty of times where God changes uh, from not doing something to doing something. Think of the Red Sea, for example. He wasn't splitting the Red Sea, and then he was. Any instance of a miracle or of prayer actually doing something— would be an indicate or an emotional state would be an indication that god does change so i would deny number 1 on uh, number 2 it says god is all powerful uh, i think pretty much any thinking person who reads that knows that obviously contradictions are ruled out of court as in any way limiting god's power so you know the classic question can god make a mountain so big he can't lift it is contradictory, and so therefore it's it, there, there is no limitation on his power for him not being able to do something that's impossible. God can't make a hot ice cube or a square circle or a married bachelor. These are all just contradictions. They're just nonsense, and so they don't infringe on God's power. So God's power is obviously only applicable to possible realities. Uh, now, for example, God cannot lie. Does that mean he's not all powerful? No, of course not. Of course not. His power is is limited by his nature, by his character. But that doesn't mean that he's not able to do everything that can be done within those parameters. God is all-knowing? Uh well, that's really the the whole your third point here or Barker's third point here. God is all-knowing. Well, that's really the whole question we've been working on here and we're we are not done yet. Uh this is Episode four out of six. And we're going to jump right into Calvinism next week and see how a Calvinist can account for God's not only knowing, but also determining all people who will be saved and how that all works out within a Calvinist system. So stay tuned for that. Dr. Sean Cole is going to help us out with that. And I really appreciate his willingness to come on the show here. But Your statement after this, John, was that if God foreknows what he will do in the future and he cannot change, and this means that he lacks the power to do so, once again, I would just deny that he cannot change, and then I don't have a problem there. And then you say, hence, God is omnipotent and does not have free will. I would affirm both of those, that God is omnipotent and has free will, but I would clarify omnipotence, as I I stated a minute ago, as being within his character and within logical possibilities. So that's how I would handle this. Uh, hopefully that, in some way, helps in your quest to answer people, give good answers to people that question us as Christians for why we believe in God, why we have this hope that is within us, and uh, that we can all do that with gentleness and respect, uh, but also with confidence and passion. Lord knows that the world could stand to hear a reasoned case for God's existence, and the and the magnificent truths that Scripture puts forward. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. If you would like to add your voice to the mix and respond to either of the comments I read out, or to drop your own comment on episode 306, Foreknowledge or Free Will Part 4 with Leighton Flowers, uh, this is his last of two episodes, and so if you wanted to engage with his take on foreknowledge or free will, uh, that that would be the place to do it. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.